Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. crazy storms, the flooding that follows them, and the damage it all does to our houses and our infrastructure, what would have to change in our lives? Would we need to make sacrifices? Would we need to pay more in taxes or for water? Today we are going to get down to brass tacks and talk about our responsibility and our opportunities to get to drier days. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I want to talk about the rain, the flooding, the power outages, all of the damage that we have suffered this summer in southeast Michigan as a result of the weather. It feels like we could start a show every week with those words, rain, flooding, power outages, damage. Over the weekend, That's exactly what we saw. Freeways were once again filled with water, stranding motorists all over the roads. Basements flooded with water yet again. And hundreds and hundreds of DTE customers lost power. Many of them are still waiting for that power to come back. And we saw something we don't see often in this part of the state. We saw some tornadoes over the weekend. The National Weather Service confirmed that four tornadoes hit southeast Michigan on Saturday night. So the question is, is this a new normal? Does the changing climate mean these problems are here to stay? And will it only get worse? And the bigger question is, how do we fix this? If we wanted to say tomorrow... We don't ever want this to happen again. We never want to have sewage backups in people's basements because of the rain. We never want to see freeways flooded. What would we have to do? Are we helpless to reverse these trends? Or are there things that we could be doing that would really reverse this slide? Are there things that we could be doing that would have us adapt? to the changing climate in a way that didn't put so much of our lives at risk. That is where we want to begin the conversation today, with getting down to the essence of what lies ahead of us. What is this challenge that we're facing, and what are the things that we're going to have to do to meet it? Joining us now to talk about that is Nick Schreck. He is Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. Nick, welcome back to Detroit. Hey, Stephen. So let's start with you describing the situation that we're seeing this summer in the bigger context of climate change. I know enough about this subject to know that weather and climate are two different things. You can have uh, an experience with weather that doesn't say what you might logically conclude about the climate. But there's no question that the weather this summer is so different 
that it seems connected to the climate change that we know has been happening for some time. That's right. The mantra has been for a long time that we know there's a difference between climate and there's a difference between the weather that you might see out your window. We've had those stories over the years where people in um, warmer weather states will say, well, how can there be global warming when it's it's snowing here in um, you know Washington, D.C. at an odd time of the year? Um, but what we know is that with warmer air temperatures, we will that air then can hold more moisture and then that moisture can lead to more intense storms like we're seeing more regularly here in Southeast Michigan. And I mean, to your point, we have to also look at this as a global issue. Um, you know, the, the wildfires in the Western United States and Western Canada, the dr extreme drought that we're seeing in the Western United States, but then also the floods in Europe. I mean, catastrophic flooding in Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium just a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're seeing catastrophic flooding in China. So, I mean, this is happening all around the globe. Um, we're feeling those impacts here. And again, with this is as predicted with warming air temperatures, that air holds more moisture and then that leads to more intense rainfall, heavier precipitation, and it can also lead to these extreme weather outbreaks like the tornadoes that we saw last weekend. Hmm. So let's get right to it. I, I'm tired of this. I know lots of other people who have had enough. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, the things that are happening and the frequency with right. which they're happening. And I, I think all of us feel pretty helpless right now in terms of saying, well, here, here's how to make it stop. So are we helpless? Are we beyond the point where we could uh, send this in a, in a different direction? Or are there things that no matter how difficult that we might be able to do that would have a short-term impact on what's happening and then, of course, a long-term impact on adapting to the, the way that the climate is changing? Yeah, and it's a it's a multifaceted problem. I mean, as I mentioned, there are global issues related to climate change, but to your question, there are things that we can do here locally to not only slow or mitigate the you know, coming changes that we will see through a warmer world um, and more extreme weather events. Um, there's also things that we can do with our infrastructure here locally to help reduce and prevent some of the catastrophic flooding that we've seen repeatedly now this summer and many times over the past uh, several years. So in terms of the, the global question and about you know, how do we uh, limit the impacts of climate change, this is really a key discussion. Later this summer, there will be leading scientists and dignitaries from all over the world in Glasgow, Scotland, talking about the latest climate science and what the world can hopefully do in terms of reducing our global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, in the United States and here in, in Michigan, primarily what we're talking about is the transportation sector. That is the, the biggest source of emissions. So you're seeing you know, more of a push for electric vehicles. Um, I, I've really <laughs> come around on this, Stephen, to thinking more about you know, it's not going to be all of us driving cars, whether they're electric vehicles or gasoline vehicles, that's the solution. I mean, I really think we need to invest significantly in transit um, to move people, get people where they need to go um, without increased emissions and without more concrete. Um, and this gets to my infrastructure point. So we have a lot of roads, we have a, a, a massive built environment here in Southeast Michigan, concrete and buildings, um, the water doesn't have anywhere to go, it needs to be funneled somewhere and, and sent somewhere. And that's where we see these, um, you know, major rain events lead to huge floods on our on our rivers and, and then backing up into, I'm sorry, on our roads, and then also backing up into people's basements and, and other flooding. And so, you know, looking at how we can perhaps change to some, you know, more mass transit solutions, and then also reducing 
those hard surfaces like concrete and roofs, coming up with ways like green infrastructure, which basically means letting water soak into the ground, right? Diverting it into open spaces and allowing that water to uh, percolate into the ground um, naturally. I mean, those are just some real basic things we need to think about is, is how we can kind of change the way that we get around uh, through transportation. And then of course, energy. So just real quickly, um, we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sector too, meaning the electricity and the way that we heat our homes. So um, I, the more that we can invest in things like wind and solar, which we've talked about many, many times, great news is there, the prices continue to come down. Um, so what we're seeing some real advancements and then looking at the way that we we heat our homes. Um, I think that's gonna be the next big push. You'll, you'll start hearing more about things like heat pumps, which are basically just an exchange of the outdoor air and the indoor air, uh, taking energy out of that air. And then also looking at things like geothermal heating, um, where we can perhaps save on natural gas, which of course also burning natural gas leads to greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a lot, um, but but there are some some things we can do, like from in terms of infrastructure and transit, um, also of course looking at our, our sewer and water infrastructure, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Hmm. So when we talk about these changes and the ways in which we could slow the effects of all of this. I think one of the real hurdles is that too many people think we could make uh, small tweaks, I guess, to our lives, little things that we could do differently that would that would have an effect. And, and it seems to me that, that the lesson of this summer might be that that's not going to be enough, that, that, that we have to make pretty dramatic shifts in the way we do some things uh, in order to have the effect that we're going to want to have, which is, again, to not see these, these catastrophic consequences each time, each time it rains. Uh, w- w- right. would, you, would you say that that's true, that, that, uh, that this is a wake-up call of a different nature than we've had before and that, that uh, you know, slight adjustments to things are probably not going to be enough? I think that's true. And there's look, we're a society that values individualism and, you know, each person having their own personal responsibility. We've seen the limitations of that, certainly in the you know COVID-19 pandemic, but this is, you know, related to, to climate change and to our collective response. You know, you and I, Stephen, yes, we can help a little bit by dialing down our thermostat, by, you know, putting in um, the, the high efficiency fixtures, toilets, light bulbs, all that kind of stuff helps. We can, you know, reduce our consumption of goods and we can try and, you know, promote recycling and reduce waste. That, that all is helpful. Those are all really good things. Um, we can ride our bike once in a while. We can take the bus. But you're absolutely right that what we need are very large changes in the way that we do things like generate electricity, the way that we move the vast majority of our people you know, to and from work, to and from school. Um, these are big shifts that do need to occur. Uh, the way that we use our land, right? The way that we um, are, are the type of agriculture that we're using. I mean, these are really big shifts that it won't be enough to just have small, subtle individual changes. We need, you know, national and international action. So that that means legislation. I mean, one of the things I'm frustrated about is that we still don't have a, a climate bill that has made its way through the U.S. Congress ever. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a huge thing that we need to address nationally. And doing these things like, yes, we can all do our part individually. That's great. But we really do need these big, large systemic changes or I think we're going to continue to be behind the eight ball in terms of a warming world and our 
inadequate response to upgrading our infrastructure, upgrading our resiliency to meet that that changing climate. Hmm. I'm talking with Nick Shrek. He's Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at the U of D Mercy Law School. Uh, we're talking about the damage that we're all living with now each time it rains, the flooding, the power outages, the damage to infrastructure that we see each time we get one of these pretty violent storms that we've had over the last month or so here in southeast Michigan. The question is, how would we stop that? How would we stop the damage, the the, the consequences that we live with because of these storms? Of course, these storms are likely the result of the changing climate, which means that uh, they're not going anywhere. Uh, We are going to have these kinds of weather events more frequently, they will be more intense. So what do we need to do to make sure that it doesn't destroy the world that we live in? What kinds of dramatic changes would you be willing to make to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore? Uh, We want to hear from you about uh, what you think about what we've experienced this summer and what you might be willing to do to make sure that uh, we don't keep experiencing it. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and to Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Nick, I want to talk about the water system here Mm -hmm. in southeast Michigan, which is an important mitigator for some of this, uh, some of this flooding, uh, we've got systems that are designed to pump the water away from people's basements and yards uh, and into the river or into the lake. Uh, they're not working. They aren't working the way that we all expect them to work. Uh, the price tag for fixing that is anywhere between, I've heard in the last month, you know, $5 billion to $18 billion, which is what uh, Sue McCormick, who runs the Great Lakes Water Authority, estimates it would cost us to separate the two sewer systems. Uh, How important is it that we think differently about water infrastructure? And importantly, how much would we have to pay on our water bills, for instance, to catch up? I mean, are we talking about doubling water bills in southeast Michigan, where people complain all the time already about the cost of water. But is something that dramatic in order uh, to, to make sure that the, the, the system has the capacity it needs and can function the way it's supposed to? Yeah, and I'll leave it to others to talk about the price tag. I mean, that's that's way out of my wheelhouse. But, but I will say this. The, the cheapest sewer system or the, the cheapest series of pipes to build is that which you don't build. Um, and what I mean by that is if we can avoid, um, you know, adding very expensive, large scale um, infrastructure below ground for our sewer system, um, hopefully that can save some costs. And the way that you avoid those major investments is through diverting rainwater, stormwater from the sewer system itself. And now you hinted at this, Stephen, but it's important, I think, to, to talk about that most of our sewer systems here in Southeast Michigan, they're what's called a combined sewer. So that means our sanitary sewer, when we flush the toilet, um, that is connected to the storm drains or mm-hmm. the when, when water comes down when it rains or when you have snow melt. And so when you have these significant rain events, the system gets overwhelmed. And either you have to release some of that 
treated or partially treated wastewater into the Rouge River, the Detroit River, Lake St. Clair, um, or yet you hold things back. And that's when you lead to these kind of catastrophic failures where you have people's basements flooded with, with contaminated water that's very unhealthy. So the way that you get through that is either you reduce the amount of flow going into the system. And that's what I'm talking about, you know, trying to divert some of this rainwater to more green infrastructure and keeping it out of the pipes, or you have to build much bigger pipes. The problem with building bigger pipes is that I just think it, it, it's a, you're, you're going to keep chasing this capacity limit that we're, we're not going to be able to meet because of these ever increasing storms. Quick example, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they built this thing called the deep tunnel, which I'm sure some of the listeners have heard about. They made this massive underground storage tank near Lake Michigan to divert all of their combined sewage waste during rain events. And then once the rain subsided, they could pump it back into the wastewater treatment plant treat it before it gets discharged into Lake Michigan. Well, you know, that system, it's already, you know, having capacity issues because of these higher rain events. So, you know, and they spent, I don't remember the price tag, but, you know, gobs of money on building this system. So I think that's one way for us to, to get through it is to try and divert a lot of this rainwater from the combined sewer system. Because, yeah, the estimates for separating that sewer system are very high. And people are already struggling with paying their water bills. And as, you're, as you pointed out, Stephen, I mean, it's, it's not just our water. We pay water and sewer. And, and the reason why our water bills are often so high is because of this debt associated with infrastructure investments on the sewer side mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. um, particularly residents in the city of Detroit are paying a higher percentage of that sewer debt. So, you know, how can we solve this problem or at least, you know, limit the amount of these types of incidents, these type of flooding incidents without going into more debt? Um, I think one way to do that is to divert that rainwater as much as we can from the sewer system itself. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to David in Washtenaw County. David, what's on your mind? Hello. Uh, I'd like to say that green infrastructure is a great way to go. Planting trees is really important. Individuals can do this. Uh, I do on my land here. People can do this in urban areas. They can do it in their backyard. They can be fruit or timber or firewood trees. Um, The government can support education programs and facilitate the availability of trees to plant. There should be a big overreaching effort to do this, as well as down to the individual. Those trees will absorb rainwater and help keep our rivers and our basements um, from absorbing too much at one time. Mm. Uh, David, uh, great call and great suggestion. Nick, can you quickly explain the value of planting trees, what that does to try to mitigate this. Yeah, this wood, yeah great, this great comment. And, yeah. and that's right. So, and there are certain species of trees, um, you, know, you know, if you go by like Belle Isle is a good example. A lot of the trees that are there, they're things like willow trees, which are, um, they absorb a lot of water, they're fast growing. Um, but in general, if you, if, if we increase our tree canopy, the number of trees we have in the city of Detroit, that means we're also reducing the amount of concrete and pavement um, and, and that also allows, you know, more water to be absorbed. And yeah, trees have massive root systems that can suck up a lot of water and store a lot of water. Um, and there are some really interesting initiatives looked at kind of reforesting the city of Detroit. And I think a lot of our, our vacant areas, um, you know, until there's some new development coming back in in certain areas, it's a great idea to, to plant a lot of trees and create these, these really park-like settings where we could divert this rainwater um, you know, have tree plantings there, other attractive um, type of plantings that can absorb that water and help uh, put it to a good use. And then the final thing I'll say, an increased tree canopy, that's a cooling effect. 
we hear a lot about the urban heat island, you know, all the, all the concrete and roofs, having more trees, more shade, that has a cooling effect in the city. And that's exactly what uh, Paris, France, the people that are interested in this, take a look at what they're doing in Paris. They're trying to, you know, reforest a lot of the city and by, and also remove a bunch of concrete and pavement uh, as a way to try and cool it to meet this, this warming world that we're living in. Mm. Uh, again, David, thanks very much for the call and the really great suggestion. Let's go to Kevin in Detroit. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for mm -hmm. having me. Appreciate uh, the conversation. Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question about uh, we had discussions in Detroit about uh, infilling some of our crosstown uh, urban freeways. Uh, could we use those as places where they could um, divert water and use it as like uh, large scale re water retention areas or mm. wetlands? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Kevin. Uh, uh, Nick, we, we saw that the freeways fill up with water partially right. uh, because they're low-lying areas, and, and when the rest of the system is full of water, there's nowhere else for it to go. Could that be something we take advantage of rather than uh, are victims of? Well, I would certainly like to see us, you know, not expand our freeways and add lanes like, uh, you know, plan is for I-94 through the city of Detroit, which uh -huh. I-94 has flooded many times. You know, certainly I think adding lanes is, is it's again, it's, it's we're, we're chasing some sort of perceived good, which is easier traffic flow, which I think we can, you know, argue a lot about whether or not that happens, but we're leading to these knock-on effects from, from climate change. And so, so to the, to the caller's point, I mean, I think, some of these low-lying areas, which these highways that are below grade, they need these pumping stations to be able to clear water when we have significant rain events. I mean, yes, could we look at turning some of those low-lying areas into, into part of our greenway network, right? Maybe they're, they're parks or they're, they're recreation paths that, yes, when it rains a lot, they flood and people then, um, you know, aren't going to be, you know, riding your bikes or, or taking a stroll with your kids along those walkways. They're going to be um, a green water retention area. I mean, that's a future that I, I like. I think that's exciting to me. Um, I think for, for a lot of people, it, it'll take a little bit more work for us to get them there because we're so focused on, you know, cars and roads and, and that that's the way that we, we move around and the way that we live our lives. But I do think turning some of that, I call it excess road, excess road capacity because we have, you know, fewer people driving on, on these roads. I think we could turn some of that into some green infrastructure space and yeah, create some park-like settings to help beautify the city. It seems like there's one thing for sure is that uh, we have a lot of work to do and that <laughs> it's going to be pretty difficult to, to wrap our minds around it. Uh, Nick Schreck of the UOD Mercy Law School, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about climate change and what it might mean for us here in Southeast Michigan. I'll talk with Beth Gibbons, who's executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, after a short break. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Every year, the looming threat of climate change becomes more of a reality. We often talk about the climate crisis as something that's really far off in the future. But the truth is that we're already experiencing the consequences of environmental destruction right here in Detroit. Think of the flooding and the heat waves which cause major blackouts. If we don't respond to these warnings, 
the poorly adapted infrastructure and the rampant environmental inequality in the city are only going to get worse. And as other places adapt to climate change, we might even need to prepare for more people coming here to Michigan in the form of climate migration. The question is, are we ready for the future of climate change here in Detroit and the effects that are already having an impact on us and our communities right now? And how do we expand our climate infrastructure in a way that doesn't disproportionately affect those already most affected by climate change in this city? Later in the hour, we're going to talk with environmental justice organizer Justin Anwenu about how to promote a culture of sustainability here in the Motor City, where even our nickname is steeped in industrialism. But first, here to talk about the potential for climate migration in the Great Lakes region and how to equitably adjust our infrastructure for that possibility is Beth Gibbons. She is the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Beth, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to get to be here. So I, I want to start with just the, the, the very idea of climate migration, which is something we don't talk a whole lot about. But it's true that Michigan, because of our proximity to the Great Lakes, because of the climate that we have, is a likely place that some people may want to move to as the planet warms and other places in this country become intolerable in, in the sense of uh, their, their climate and the ability to live there comfortably. But, but let's talk about how realistic that is and how much we should be focusing on the possibility of that, given that we don't talk that much about it. Is this something that is very likely or not very likely to actually happen? That's a, that's really at the core of the question that ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, has been trying to get at over the last year or two years of work that we've been doing. As I like to say, there is this tantalizing idea that the Great Lakes region would be a region that would attract people to it because we have a temperate climate, because we have an abundance of water, because we have a history of innovation, because we have a core of amazing cities and amazing places. You can, you can imagine people as they're seeking refuge from the climate crisis, which is breaking out globally and across our country and across North America, um, we imagine people moving here, but we've really been trying to get at that question of, can we model it? Can we predict it? Can we find signals that are happening already that would say that this is something that we, that we can guarantee? Um, and I would say just as a spoiler alert to this <laughs> conversation, um, you know, we're really still in the process of learning. And it is, it's a new question and it's a new kind of science to try to bring climate impacts into demographic modeling or migration and the way people move. And so we're really still at the early phase of answering that question of what can we know for sure. Hmm. So, so I also want to talk just a little about the evidence that climate change is already affecting life here in Detroit and throughout Southeast Michigan. I think that's another thing that we don't talk a lot about. I think we react 
to things as they happen. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if you're like me uh, and have grown up here in the 70s and 80s uh, and now live here in the, the 2020s, there's no question that there's a lot of difference in the, the climate. I mean, there are a lot of things that I can remember happening regularly as a, a child here in terms of weather and climate that don't happen anymore. And then there are all kinds of things that happen now that I don't remember ever seeing as a child. But 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 let's talk just a little about how we know what the effects of climate change are here in southeast Michigan and, and why you think we ought to be concerned about them. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So, I mean, one one thing that I'll say sometimes is that we are now in it. We are now feeling the impacts of climate change every day. We can look around globally or nationally and see that, but locally, we're seeing it with more severe storms, these punctuated um, rain events, the experience that we had of these intense rainstorms that are flooding out our streets. We're seeing it in the increase in heat events. And heat events aren't just a hot day, but a series of hot days. And amazingly, the human body isn't great at regulating its own temperature. And so it needs these cooling periods at night. And we're not getting those. We're seeing more occurrences of extended heat events, and they're devastating for people's health. And they're devastating for the health of people in a city like Detroit, where there are really significant differences in how heat is experienced across the city as a legacy of planning and design and policy um, dating back to dating back to redlining in the city and coming forward today to where we have more and less trees and tree canopy that allow for greater cooling at night. So when we take the the heat events, the rain events, um, there's a series of natural you know things happening in our natural system. Um, you know, increase in ticks. Anybody who's been out in you know out in a wooded area, out in nature in Southeast Michigan, has been experiencing this increase in the activity of ticks. That's a um, climate related change. And then we're also seeing on the other side, really a um, what we will call a loss of winter. And so we're seeing fewer um, really heavy snow days. Mm-hmm. Our winter season is compacted. We're seeing the thaw come earlier. And we're also seeing you know, that, that fall season extend deeper into the winter. And on one hand, um, I think that there's a pride in being a Michigander and like handling a hardy winter. And then there's also kind of a laughing it off, like, oh, a little less winter, that's okay. But it's significant because things like that change how people interact with their environment. If it only gets really cold, really snowy a couple days a year, you might not be buying the boots and the snow pants that you need for your kids. And then when those events come, then do you send them out in the snow? Do you send them out to walk to school, to wait for the bus? Any case, these are kind of these cascading questions. They're really live and they're very much with us today. Now, climate change isn't just something that is a threat outside of our communities. It's something that comes right into our city, comes into our homes, um, that may be in the form of the route that you're driving to work. It may be in the fact that you're getting water in your basement, you're seeing more flooding, and how we address those impacts is really a question that we need to deal with today. 
for the people who are here today, for the people who have been in Detroit for generations. And then it also leads us into this conversation of what happens as we might imagine more people migrating to this region, migrating to Detroit. How do we ensure that we've taken care of the people who are here already and that we're preparing for not just climate change, but also demographic change and population change, which Mm. may be coming our way? Mm. I'm talking with Beth Gibbons. She's the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about climate change more globally and the effects that we're seeing all over the planet and all over our country. But we're also talking about it specifically here in southeast Michigan and uh, in the city of Detroit, the kinds of things that tell us that climate change is happening now and that the consequences of that climate change are playing out now in our lives. The question is, what do we do about it? And how do we prepare for a future in which all kinds of people will be reacting to climate change and maybe even deciding to relocate because other parts of our country or the world become less comfortable to live in and as Michigan perhaps becomes more hospitable? What should we be doing to get ready for that possible eventuality? Beth, before we get to our listeners, uh, I want to put that question to you about preparing our infrastructure for uh, current or oncoming environmental crises, but also preparing for this idea of perhaps a a growth in population as people decide that uh, the climate here in Michigan is better than it is where they are now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate the framing of saying the environmental crisis of today and what may be coming because it's really important. What's really critical when we think about climate change impacts is we could think about them as um, as a threat multiplier, or you could think about them as exacerbating existing vulnerabilities or shortcomings, essentially, in the services that have been present up until now. And so when I think about this topic and begin relating it into the city of Detroit and into Southeast Michigan broadly, I think it's really important that we're thinking about um, the way that we invest in neighborhoods that have been historically disinvested from. So as we're thinking about places which have suffered the greatest air quality impacts, places which have had fewer investments in terms of um, tree planting, green infrastructure, water, stormwater management. We need to get those concerns under control today. And these are concerns that have been being raised um, for a long time by the environmental justice community. Air quality will only be further damaged as we see these more extended heat events. Um, When we think about those combined sewer overflows, which are a problem that the city of Detroit faces in many legacy cities across the the Great Lakes region face, we need to be thinking about where do those stormwater overflows occur already and getting that under control. Um, I think the Detroit Water Sewer District is really um, aware of this. They are utility and entity that's really thinking about the way climate change is impacting their service delivery. And I definitely need to give them credit for that Mm -hmm. work that that they're putting out there. Um, And so thinking about that first, you know, we can say that um, climate change, especially here, I'd say, is not aliens landing on Earth. It's really identifying where have we failed 
previously? And how will we identify those weaknesses and address them now using this, you know, motivator for greater action? And so, um, so we take those pieces, then we start talking about infrastructure. And when we talk about infrastructure, what's really important is that we're starting to build to a climate of the future. And so we are seeing, you know, increased heat, increased storms, increased rain, we can't put in roads and bridges and infrastructure pieces that are not actually going to be able to withstand the impacts of the future. And so this is where we start having to bring engineers along on this journey and say, we need you to be thinking about the um, future storm, what we would call the return intervals. So this is, you hear people say a, a five-year storm, a 10-year storm, a 100-year storm, a 500-year storm. Well, those kinds of designations all need to be updated because they need to reflect the actual weather and the, the climate that we're moving into today. Along with that, we need to bring along FEMA. You know, FEMA creates flood maps mm -hmm. and many of those maps are woefully out of date. There's a huge need to update those maps so that people are aware of their risk and importantly, are able to access the resources from FEMA and from other agencies when a disaster occurs. And so um, as we think about infrastructure, we think about changes, there's a lot of environmental justice concerns which are well-documented and need to be addressed today. And then there is thinking about the way that we upgrade our infrastructure, build new infrastructure, which needs to be incorporating new climate information so that it is not the, not the infrastructure of 2010, but the infrastructure of, you know, 2070 and 2100, it'll still be there secure, serving people well um, into the future of the city. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to keep Beth Gibbons, who's executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Uh, we're also going to add another voice to this conversation, Justin Unwainu, who is a Detroit-based environmental justice organizer is going to join us as well. We will also continue to hear from you, Jim in Gross Point, Madeline in Suburbia, Robert in Detroit, and Heather in Ferndale. Uh, we will get to you next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Beth Gibbons. She's an executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. We've been talking about climate change, both in a global sense and in a local sense, the impacts we're all seeing already from climate change uh, and what they may mean, not just now, but in the future. Uh, I also want to add another voice to the conversation right now. Justin Anwenu is a Detroit-based environmental justice organizer. He is also on the Governor's Ex Advisory Council for Environmental Justice and the Black Leadership Advisory Council. Justin, welcome back to Detroit Thank Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I want to talk to you just a bit about the effort here in Detroit, which I think looks really different than it does in some other Southeast Michigan uh, communities. Uh, talk about our history as a Rust Belt city, creating 
different layers, I think, of, of difficulty in, in dealing with climate change and adapting, but also uh, the ways in which we adapt to making the city greener without leaving Detroiters behind, talking about these inequalities that exist uh, in, in our city. Balancing those two, I think, is one of the toughest tasks we face, but, but just dealing with each uh, is, is a challenge in and of itself. You're absolutely right. I think our, our history, the city of Detroit's history, presents a number of challenges, but also opportunities as we take on climate change. In terms of challenges, I think, you know, our industrial history means that we have, you know, a lot of facilities, a lot of uh, sites that have not been remediated that are uh, causing the, the sorts of pollution that worry us from a climate perspective. I also think that in terms of challenges, the the level of poverty that we're dealing with means that climate may not be at the top of people's priority list um, of issues. But I think when climate is dis, uh, discussed as not just um, an environmental issue, but issues that face people on an everyday basis when it comes to pollution, when it comes to having a safe um, and healthy place to live, these are issues that I think Detroiters care about, and they're deeply connected uh, to climate change. Um, the state of Michigan, and in particular Detroit, we're facing a number of challenges when it comes to flooding and stormwater management, water quality and water access, extreme heat uh, places a, a significant burden and a particular burden on Detroit, given our, our levels of poverty and our housing stock. And then also utility and electric costs, um, which are already a burden for many Detroit customers, given our, our housing stock and just high rates of, of electric bills. All of these are, are challenges that, that are particularly acute in Detroit. I also think, you know, given our, our industrial history, uh, the history of our workers um, and creating the middle class, we do have an opportunity if we capitalize on it, if we take advantage of, of just the workers and the, and the opportunity that we have to invest in, you know, replacing lead service lines, to invest in clean energy and electric vehicle infrastructure, to invest in workforce training. So there are, you know, many challenges that make organizing and make uh, fighting uh, climate change in Detroit a particular feat, but I also think we have a lot of opportunities ahead of ourselves um, if, if, we, if we're you know, diligent and if we're taking advantage of the opportunities ahead of us. Yeah. So, uh, Justin, if, if you can s- sort of think about the things that we are doing and the things that we should be doing to try to adapt the city and the way we live in the city uh, to climate change, what what would be two or three things on your list? Right. So I always say, again, climate change is not just about our environment. It's about making sure that our communities and that our neighborhoods are, are, safe, are safe and healthy. So I think of, you know, access to quality food, good jobs and good health as, as a part of what our climate strategy should look like. So, you know, in the face of um, climate, I think things like cooling centers, grocery stores, uh, investment in stormwater management, and of course, investment in water infrastructure and water affordability have to be at the forefront of, of what we're doing to make sure that our neighborhoods are resilient. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how Michigan might be a, a, a place where everybody wants to come and live and vacation uh, because of warmer uh, temperatures and everything like that. And we kind of in the back of our head feel like, oh, that's kind of a good thing. We're going to be living in the, in the center of the world or whatever. But uh, who is to say that 
these extreme temperature changes and, and the climate changes are not going to kill off the trees that we already have here that cannot um, cannot bear these extremes. And with all the sand underneath um, the state that we might become more like Arizona or um, hmm. California, where there are all the wildfires all the time. And um, it, it, it might be a place where people come, but, you know, the Great Lakes um, can dry up and uh, we might we might not have the kind of climate that we're hoping for. Huh. That's a really interesting. That's a really interesting observation, Robert. I'm glad you called and uh, and made that. Uh, Beth Gibbons, uh, react to what Robert's saying. Is this is this idea that people will want to move here predicated on a climate that may not even exist uh, in the in the future in Michigan? Well, it's certainly predicated on the idea that we're going to be taking action to ensure that we are a place that people can live healthy and safe lives. And so I think some of what Robert alluded to, um, I don't I don't know that the lakes will dry up, but the lakes could become, you know, um, unusably polluted. Um, we do think about tree planting as an adaptation strategy in itself, but he's right. Tree species are changing and we need to be thinking now about what are the trees that we need to be planting and how do we need to help to ensure our forests don't continue being, you know, what we call monoculture that has really emerged over the last uh, several decades. We need to we need to be thinking about our whole system so that we're adapting as well. In Michigan and all places face risk. And so I don't think that we are going to go in a direction maybe as, as severe as some of what Robert suggested. But our work on this topic is really long-term is long-term work. And it's saying, let's make sure that we are preparing our economies and our ecosystems and our services so that we are able to retain a high quality of life for people here into the future. And that will take action and planning. Yeah. Uh, Justin, go ahead. I I was just going to say, you know, in 2019, Senator Sabanow released a report detailing all of the climate impacts that are facing Michigan. And outlined in that report uh, were descriptions of you know, disruption to agricultural crop yields, commercial shipping uh, disruption, giving fluctuating water levels, erosion and flooding, asthma and other health impacts tied to smog and pollution, and also even things like an extended allergy season. So, you know, this notion um, that that we are kind of a, a, a climate-free island in Michigan is is false. I do think that, you know, as we think about people migrating to Michigan who are facing you know, more intense climate impacts. We have to make sure that we're protecting the things that make Michigan special in the first place. We have to make sure that we're doubling down on our Great Lakes, on access to water, making sure that, you know, uh, water isn't being overly commodified as as residents uh, struggle to gain access. We have to make sure that we're investing, you know, in the infrastructure, and that means, of course, electric vehicles and other forms of infrastructure, we also have to make sure that we're actually preparing to make sure that when people come here that, you know, there is a, an environment that is uh, full of jobs and opportunity. And so I think, you know, as we think about people moving to Michigan, we also need to make sure that we're doubling down on the things that make Michigan special. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to thank uh, Beth Gibbons, who is executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals uh, for being with us. Beth, it was really great to get your perspective into this conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Yeah.
Uh, and we're going to continue the conversation now with Justin Anwenu and with you, uh, our listeners. Let's go to Will in Livonia. Will, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Good. Uh, thanks, thanks for taking my call. I'm mm-hmm. good. Yeah, actually, um, this topic is really interesting for my family and myself. We moved to southeast Michigan from um, Tennessee about two years ago, and uh, part of that decision, although not, not entirely, was actually influenced by kind of what the climate would look like in the future. So there was something we definitely considered when we chose Michigan. Wow. Uh, and th- give us a sense of what you've experienced. Do you feel like the climate here is better than it was in Nashville? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, being, I'm, I'm from Kentucky originally and I, you know, I'm, um, I remember my, my childhood, we had a lot more four seasons and, you know, winter was kind of a thing, you know, even in Kentucky, not, not too far removed from the Midwest, but, um, things definitely changed, um, you know, in the last couple of decades, I, I feel living, living in Tennessee as well, was just summers were so scorching. You'd have 90 degree, uh-huh. you know, weather even into November. So um, seeing those changes, I thought, um, kind of future-wise, and having a having a child too, thinking you know what what would be best for her, hmm. you know, future in the midterm, and so moving moving to the Midwest definitely influenced that, and then so other factors kind of led us to Michigan economic, um, kind of the base of like engineering that's here and those kind of things as well. Yeah, well, that's a that's a really interesting it's a really interesting story. Will I'm glad you called. Uh, Justin on on Wainu, there there's uh, a great example of what we may be kind of facing in the in the future. And Will sounds like the kind of person that we would want to have here and move his family. But that does really require us to to change the way we think about this community and and prepare in a way that we probably haven't uh, quite gotten our minds around yet. You're absolutely right, and I think. You know, one of the things to think about is, you know, we assume that, that Michigan is the, the Midwestern state that people will move to, you know, who are working to escape the impacts of climate change. But there are other states as well that, that will not be facing the, the brunt of climate impacts. And so in that sense, we have to, you know, compete and make sure that we're making the investments so that Michigan is the place that people are deciding to move to, to invest in, to raise a family in. And I think that we do have that opportunity if we make the right investments. Okay, Justin Anwenu, Detroit-based environmental justice organizer. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great day. That's going to do it for us today. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.